It's uh, good to uh, welcome you today. <clears throat> but I was, um, was going to put all the latecomers at a disadvantage by telling you a story to start with. They won't have a clue what we're all in on. <clears throat> and you're going to wonder what on earth I'm talking about to start with, but hopefully it will become plain um, as we proceed. Um, a number of years ago, um, I think it was probably within a year of uh, 9-11, um, I went on business on a business trip to Milan. Um, and on the way back, we went to the, you know, the airport to, to check in. And uh, it wasn't clear where the British Airways desk was. <clears throat> and we eventually found it tucked up one end of the, uh, the arrivals, uh, sorry, the departures hall, um, alongside the Al Al um, check-in desk. And uh, I think it was American. It was certainly a US carrier uh, check-in desk. And they were separated from the, the rest of the uh, arrivals, uh, the departures hall, uh, by, you know, these kind of crowd barriers. And uh, you kind of had to walk round the back behind these stairs through a very restricted area to, to get into uh, the check-in for these three uh, airlines. And they were guarded by the meanest, most horrible, ornery-looking policemen or special forces I've ever seen. There were a team of four of them wandering around. They uh, had this huge uh, Rottweiler attack dog with them. They were covered in their, you know, their bulletproof vests. They were bristling with guns, machine guns and sidearms and goodness knows what else in their belts. And one of these guys was huge. Now thinking back on him, I think of a guy whose chest was the size of the trunk of an oak tree and biceps that were as thick as my thighs and he was shaven head and he looked mean. He looked like the kind of guy you wouldn't want to meet in an alley in daylight, let alone at night. <laughs> and <clears throat> they were obviously there to guard these three uh, check-in desks for LL, British Airways, <clears throat> and this American carrier. <clears throat> and these, these guys had this kind of... They were, they were there to protect from terrorists, but they had this aura of terror, <laughs> such that if you wanted to go on the other side of them, the route you would have taken would have been very circuitous. You just wouldn't want to go near them. And it was an interesting experience because there was an obvious fear that we had of them and you could see everybody reacting the same way. <clears throat> but at the same time, there was a confidence that we were on the right side of them. We would have only been af properly afraid of them if we were the terrorists coming through the door. We were on the right side of them and therefore they held no fear for us. But we would still walk all the way round them <clears throat> and not go near them. And that wasn't just the dog, it was this huge guy that made you feel like that. So just hold that in your mind as we now go look and see at some stuff that the Bible says. 
<coughs> a few weeks ago, well, I've, I've, I've been um, sort of going through some of the, the minor prophets. Uh, what I will say is, um, in terms of Bible references, we're going to be all over the place today, so I've put them up on, a, on the projector because you'll be scattering around and you won't keep up with me. <clears throat> so, um, one of the, the minor prophets I had to look at was Habakkuk. And one of the verses that uh, really captivated me was Habakkuk 2.14 that reads, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. This isn't one that's up there. This is not up there, by the way. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that reminded me of a famous chorus. Not that I could actually remember the words, but I remember a chorus about the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Um, But I was kind of captivated by that, wondering what this knowledge of the glory of the Lord is. Because we often talk about God being glorious and our glorifying God. But but what is God's glory? And then I was reading a book. It happened to be um, the Gospel-Powered Parenting book. And (coughs) uh, this was at the same time, exactly the same time as I was pondering the glory of the Lord. (coughs) And it was talking about the fear of God. And as I then started to think about the fear of God, what I discovered was that a lot of the characteristics of God that we see as glorious are the same characteristics that lead to the fear of God. And therefore I began to think, if we... If we're to glorify God properly, we must actually have a proper fear of God. Because if we don't, we can't really understand these, be understanding these characteristics of God. And the other thing that was interesting was that this, this consideration of the glory of God and the fear of God unavoidably led directly to the cross, where we see the wrath of God, which, if you like, is the thing that probably we fear from God, we see that uh, the, the fearful wrath of God that we deserve for our sin and our rebellion against him was diverted by Jesus and we receive that merciful salvation that we don't deserve. And that's the point about mercy, isn't it, that Derek delights in telling us we don't deserve mercy, but we get the mercy that we don't deserve. We deserve, we actually deserve the cross. So what I wanted to do today was just unpack these thoughts about uh, the glory of God and what it is that that enables us to glorify him and the fear of the Lord and look at them together. And I wanted to share with you some of the stuff that that I'd discovered. So first of all, what are the characteristics of God that lead to our glorifying him? And there are a number of those. He is holy. He has overwhelming power, he has absolute righteousness, and he has an immense and infinite vastness. And I know there are some others uh, as well that you, I mean this is almost an endless list, (coughs) once you start unpacking it. 
But I wanted to think about those things. First of all is holiness. Generally, when we use, use the word holy and holiness, we tend to think of, uh, I suppose, morality, moral behaviour, good behaviour. But that isn't what holiness means. It means to be separate from. So when we're a holy people, we are separated from the world for God. So how is God separated from us? Well, he's separated from us by the fact that he simply is God. In the beginning, before creation, there was God. And everything else was created by God. And therefore, God, by definition, is separated from us. Because he isn't his creation. He is God. So... Simply put, God is the infinite God and nothing else at all. And everything else that there is, is his finite creation. So he is set apart from the world, from us, by the simple fact that he is God. And in that sense, he is holy, separated, set apart. Now we often think, as I say, of holiness as having that moral aspect... and we think of when we call God holy, we tend, first of all, to think about that that pureness of God. And I think that is because that's really his preeminent characteristic. So that purity and righteousness have kind of become synonymous with God and therefore with holiness. But as I say, what holiness really means, that he is set apart, it's really saying... When we say God is holy, we're really saying God is God. It's about his godness. And there's a whole load of characteristics of God that are there in God. And that's what I want to um, unpack a little bit. So first of all, let's just think about his absolute and overwhelming power. And these are the the first verses, Ian. Thank you. His absolute and overwhelming power is demonstrated... By the fact that he created. And how did he create? He created by command, a word. And at the beginning of Genesis, we read that time and time again, that time and time again. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there be an expanse. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. And God said, let there be lights in the sky. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and so on. God created by his command. And here in Isaiah 42, just the, uh, the first one up there we'll read. Thus, this is Isaiah speaking. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Here is Isaiah saying, God is creator. And he says that in the other verse there, Isaiah 44 and uh, and verse 24. But here we have God through Isaiah saying, I am the creator. And if you actually look at the context of that in Isaiah, um, Isaiah uses that format uh, several times and some of the other prophets do as well and what God is doing when Isaiah says that God is saying 
I'm the creator, I'm all-powerful, I am almighty, I can do anything. Now listen to what I say I am going to do. So in this formula, with these words, and the Isaiah 44 words and other similar phrases, what God is saying, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do and believe me, because I have the absolute power and authority of being the creator. I can do what I say I will do. He has this absolute and overwhelming power. He has absolute righteousness as well, another major characteristic of God. And there are three bits to that I've chosen to pull out. His absolute goodness, his perfect justice, and his integrity. Um, The next one, please, Ian. Now, we read in Exodus when um, Moses was up on Mount Sinai with God. Uh, we, we read this passage. Then Moses said to God, Now show me your glory. This is Exodus 33:18 and 19. <clears throat> then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, I am Yahweh, the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The first thing God said here to Moses was, I will let you see my goodness. So part of the major characteristic of God is his absolute and perfect goodness. And that's the first thing Moses saw. What Moses was actually only allowed to see was the back of God. God hid him in a rock and he said, I'll place my hand over you so you can't see me pass by and when I've passed by, you will be able to see my back. So even the back of God, goodness, absolute perfect goodness. And I think we all understand what goodness means. And there is God, the absolute perfect example of goodness. And then his perfect justice. God is a God of justice. And this comes out in many places um, throughout the Bible. But because he is righteous, because he is absolutely perfectly good, he cannot tolerate wrong. He cannot tolerate sin. He cannot tolerate Injustice, And here's just one of the uh, references to his view on justice. Now the context for this, this is Isaiah 58, verses 5 to 7. The context of this is Israel is bemoaning God seems to be doing nothing for them. He seems to have rejected them. And they're saying, well, hey, God, we come and we offer sacrifices. We come and we spend days in fasting and prayer for you and we we moan and wail because you're not there. And this is God's reply. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. And then he explains what that means. 
Untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. The major problem God had with the Israelites here was they were worshipping foreign gods. And they were still pretending to worship him. And they couldn't understand why he wasn't responding to them. So they were whipping themselves into a frenzy and getting into fasting and prayer and and all sorts of stuff and wondering why he wasn't responding. And it was because they were worshipping foreign gods and they had completely lost his ethic, if you like, his goodness. And they were no longer living that life that would be um, an example of, of God to the world, to the nations, which was their purpose. And so God says, Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice. God absolutely hates injustice because he is a God of justice. And because he's a God of justice, it means that the crime, as it were, deserves the appropriate penalty. That's the outworking of justice. And you know our complaint when we don't see justice done in our law system. Because we don't see the penalty fitting the crime. And the next verse, Ian, please. But God is also a God of integrity. And that means he is perfectly trustworthy. And here in Numbers 23.19 is a fantastic verse. This to me seems to be the verse that underpins the fact that we can have faith in God. And it reads, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? That's Numbers 23.19. Isn't that a fantastic verse? God is saying, what I think I say and what I say I do. What I promise I will do. Why can he do that? Because he has the authority, because he is the creator and he has absolute power. Therefore he can do all things. There's no hint here and nor should there be that God is dependent upon anybody to do anything. He can do anything that he says he will do. And that will, of course, be done in line with his justice, in line with his goodness, in line with his creativity, uh, if you like. And then let's think about his immense and infinite vastness. And the next one, Ian. God is a huge God. And here are three verses that highlight that fact psalm 147 and verse 4 he determines the number of stars and calls them each by name now can anybody tell me how many stars there are in the universe quite a lot that's probably the most accurate answer you will ever get quite a lot nobody but nobody can count the stars in the universe now the people with brains bigger than ours have tried to estimate how many stars they believe are in the universe. And they come up with a number uh, of 300 sextillion. And if you think of a thousand being one followed by three zeros, 300 sextillion is three followed by 23 zeros. Quite a lot. Another way of putting that is 3 trillion times 100 billion. 
And you think the economic problem we had with the bank crash was big. Yeah, we were talking like two and three trillions in all around the globe. Here we're talking about um, three trillion, well, a hundred billion, no, three hundred billion trillions. Yeah? Huge, immense is this universe, and God created it. But more than that, what does that say? He names every star. The stars and calls them each by name. So that means he knows. He just doesn't know how many there are. He knows each and every one of those quite a lot of stars. And then the next verse, coming towards the other end of the scale, Matthew 10.30. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, Chris has got some hair today, just... I mean, there are, again, probably quite a lot of hairs on heads in this room today. And we'd have a hard job counting them. That's obviously much easier than counting the number of stars that there are in the sky. But here is the extreme. God knows the name of each of that huge, humongous number of stars, and yet he knows every hair on your head. And more than that, in this era of particle physics, we know as you go smaller and beyond, you know, down smaller than the atom, there are a huge number of of little particles. And we're starting there to move to, well, the kind of numbers, actually more numbers than there are stars in the skies, because all the stars in the skies there are, um, are made of atoms with all those minuscule particles. And God knows all of this. He is absolutely vast. There is nothing that he does not know, which leads us to that Hebrews 4.13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So this is not just about the physical universe. This is actually about what you think. You thought you were the only person, perhaps, that knew what you thought. God knows everything that you think. He sees everything that we do. You know the, uh, the, the you know the joke about well, is it a joke? The, you know the comment about uh, doing wrong. You know the the only crime is getting caught. Hey, everything is caught by God. Everything is caught by God, and more than that, as we'll see in a moment, we have to give account for everything that we do and everything that we think. And if you just think of the evidence of that, when Jesus um, talked about lusting after a woman, he said that was as good as adultery. He knows what we think. He knows what we think. So there's just a, a quick rush through of some of these huge characteristics that enable us to bring glory to God. You know, his righteousness, his holiness, his immenseness, his creativity. These are all things that make our hearts sing and want to bring praise and glory to him. But as I say, what I discovered was, it's these characteristics that also lead to the proper fear of God. Now, the fear of God is not necessarily a negative thing. So think of this story that all the latecomers won't know anything about. This police team... They were fearful, but there was a definite benefit of having them there. 
it meant that somebody wasn't going to come in and blow up the airport. Definite benefit. And I felt a definite benefit. I was uncomfortable with them there, but I felt a definite benefit because I knew, as I said before, I was on the right side of them and they were there to stop the guys on the wrong side of them coming in and killing me. Definite benefit for this other side of God. So from a human perspective, we tend to think fear is negative, but it's not. It has benefits. Could you put the next ones up? And here are just two examples from the Bible of the, the benefits of the fear of God. Psalm 111 and verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then Psalm 103, 17 and 18. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. From everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And more than that, and his righteousness with their children's children. So there's an ongoing benefit from the fear of God. But the question then is, how much should we fear him and why exactly should we fear him? Well, first of all, because of his holiness, in that he's separated from and different from us, as human beings we tend to fear things that we don't fully understand. And for sure, we don't fully understand God. He's revealed an awful lot about himself to us. There's a lot that we can understand, but there's more that we don't understand. There's his ability to know all things. Nothing is hidden from him, not even the stuff that we think. And therefore, if anybody's going to catch us out, if you'll forgive this line of thought, if anybody's going to catch us out, it is going to be God. And if we think somebody's going to catch us out in what we're doing, we tend to be fearful of them, don't we? And we tend to behave. That's the fallen human way. God knows all things. And we know that we will be called to account by God for the things that we do. Because nothing is hidden from his sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And then there's his absolute power that means he has the ability to do whatever he decrees. He has... Well, he's, he's sovereign is what that really means. He has the authority to do things because he's the creator. And his power is absolute. So he can do them. Therefore, he has this sovereignty by right and authority to do things and by ability to do things. And one of the ways we've read, and we, we read a lot of this when we looked through the book of Revelation, we see how God's judgment is going to work out in the world. And the next one here, Revelation 6, 12 to 17, is one example of those things that we read. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. 
Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So God has the power and the ability and the authority to execute his judgment. And his power is so great that he can virtually, well, he can kind of uncreate the world. We read in there things that are almost tantamount to uncreating the world, rolling up the sky. He has that power and ability. And because of his perfect righteousness, he demands that the just penalty be paid for things that are done wrong, for sin, for rebellion, for things against him. The very nature of his righteousness means that he cannot countenance, he cannot come into the presence of, he cannot tolerate sin. And he demands its full and complete reckoning. And that's what leads to his wrath. We see here an expression of how he will, in part, deliver that wrath. And it is so fearful that the people that know they're going to be victim of it would rather be have a mountain fall upon them. And you just think back to some of the earthquake things we see and the mudslide stuff we see on the news. The horror that we feel when we read and see that there are these folk who are trapped under buildings, under mountains, under mudslides. But God's wrath is so fearful that people would rather have that than face his wrath. And that's because sin requires the appropriate penalty. Now we're finite people, but we sin against an infinite God. And God demands, therefore, an infinite penalty because it's an infinite sin. It's a huge, never-ending Uh, sin that requires a never-ending penalty, an infinite penalty. And that is eternal hell. And if you think of the other way, we people are finite. There is no way that we can pay an infinite penalty unless the term of that penalty is eternity. It's the only way a finite person can deliver up an infinite penalty. And when we come to the cross, that is a visible expression of the wrath of God. It's an expression of his requirement for justice. And that was a horrible death. But if we don't believe, if we haven't received justification through faith, if we haven't received God's righteousness through the death of Jesus, that's the place that each of us should have been pinned. Can you imagine it for a moment, being there on the cross, pinned with those nails, the agony and the pain? And that would have been the beginning of the just desert for our rebelliousness and our natural enmity and opposition to God. And those are the reasons why we should fear God. And those are exactly the results, or those are the results of exactly the same characteristics 
that cause us to bring glory to God. But there's one other thing. That fear is moderated by God's love. And it's because of his love that he found another way for that penalty to be paid other than us paying it. And that's why Jesus died on the cross. Another way of looking at that was Jesus is God. He is therefore infinite. And therefore in a short period of time he can pay the infinite penalty for sin. So he took our place. When we should have been nailed to that cross he was. When we should have suffered the torment of hell effectively he did. And he paid that infinite penalty because he was God he was infinite and only he could really do it and therefore we who believe will receive what we don't deserve we deserve the cross and if we believe we receive what we don't deserve justification righteousness from God we deserve we we receive what we don't deserve escape from the cross and then the, the next one in it's up good And that's what John 3, 16 to 18 is about. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the bit that we all remember, but the next bit is equally important. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. We come into this world condemned. Why? Because we've inherited sin. We've inherited Adam's rebellion. And that means we start out deserving the condemnation. We start out deserving the cross. And then we then, as we live, we compound Uh, the things that we deserve as we live in that rebellion. But to those who believe John 3.16, we need no longer be in the terror of God because God is terrifying. We need no longer be in his terror. But we do. That, That terror, if you like, migrates and becomes an absolute respect for him, a desire to please him, a desire to love him, a desire to keep a short account with him. But for those who don't believe, the fear is real. It ought to be real. Because they deserve, because they haven't had their sins dealt with, the stuff that comes as a result of God's absolute power his ability to do what he says he will do, and his demand for absolute justice. The very things that cause us to glorify God. And so what I'd say today is if you don't believe, if you aren't on the right side of the cross, remember I was happy to be on the right side of that police team in Milan. I'd have been in real trouble if I'd have been on the wrong side of them. But I was on the right side of them. So we need to be on the right side of the cross. And the only way to do that is to receive God's grace and mercy. And if you haven't done that, I'd encourage you to do that today. 
if we fully appreciate what our sinful nature deserves from the hands of a just God, infinite punishment in eternal hell, we'll begin to understand the magnitude of the price that Jesus paid on the cross. The infinite punishment that we each deserve, and we who believe, who have received God's free gift of justification, who have been made righteous in his sight, will begin to grasp what we owe to the Father, because his love found a way to divert his eternal and infinite wrath from us. As we seek to glorify God, we cannot deny that he is an awesome, fearful God, because the characteristics that are glorious are those that lead to fearsomeness. To do so is to deny his character, who he is. It is to make less of him than we should. When we do this, we miss the magnitude of what the cross is about, what we owe God, the avoidance of that infinite punishment. And we will not glorify God as we should, with absolute gracefulness, gratefulness and devotion. God's glory and man's fear of God are sides of the same coin. However, we who believe must never focus alone on the fear. We must always remember that he is also a God of love and it is that love that caused him to provide a way for the just penalty of your sin and my sin to be dealt with so that we can be reconciled to him. But we must always remember the price that was willingly paid on the cross. Thank you. Let's just pray. Father God, we come to you and we want to thank you that you are a glorious God, that these characteristics, if we looked at, are true and they lead us to be able to declare your glory because they are the way that you work out. They're the, the evidence of your existence, as it were. But Lord, we have to recognise that those same characteristics are the ones that lead to a proper fear of you. They're the ones that lead to the cross. And they're the ones that lead also to our salvation. And we thank you and praise you that you found a way, that you provided a means for us to be made right with you without having to pay that infinite penalty in an eternal hell. We just praise and thank you, Father God, for your love that caused you to find that way that we should avoid that penalty. Thank you. Amen.